This morning we're looking at Acts chapter 32, chapter 9, verses 32 to 42. Luke's attention has been on Saul and his conversion in the beginning of his ministry up to this point now. Excuse me, the attention turns to Peter. We might remember from previous chapters that persecution of believers had caused a dispersion of believers in Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem, and as they dispersed and scattered to different places, uh, it was pointed out that they brought the gospel with them. And while it wasn't pleasant and looked bad for the church, it accomplished just the opposite of what the persecutors were hoping for. Whereas the believers left and went in different places, they spoke of Christ. We read of one in particular, Philip, who went south and had a great success as God blessed his work mightily. I bring this up because what we're going to find is Peter now will retrace almost the same route that Philip took. And he will be looking to, to strengthen the churches that grew and developed as Philip went through preaching the gospel. There would be a, a coastal <clears throat> aspect to this, which means that the gospel in these areas then would go to the seaports. And from the seaports, they would go out into different and other areas of the world. We'll see two different people that Peter will encounter, two miracles, two occasions of helping the helpless, two more times of Christ working through his people, and one great result in the impact that it had on the people who witnessed them. Verse 32 of Acts chapter 9. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in and now we look at this and we say we want to say Lida or Lida but it's Lida. The wise in this particular case is pronounced as a U. It was the area called Lud at one time or Lud. There he found a certain man Now, here we have another time of pronunciation. His name is A-E-N-E-S. A-E-N-E-S. So you say the first two letters with the long sound, and the next vowel has a long sound, and the last vowel has a short sound. So you want to, let's all say it together. A-E-N-E-S. All right, there you go. Don't you feel better now? Because his name is going to be referred to, and you'll be going, all right, well, is it Anus? No. Aeneas? Uh, Amos? No, it's Aeneas. We find out that he had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. And so all who dwelt in Luda and Sharon 
saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Tabitha is the Aramaic version of that name. Dorcas is the Greek version of that name. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her and laid her on an, in an upper room, and since Luda was near Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And when Peter arose and went with them, when he had... Well, then Peter rose and went with them. And when he had come, they, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the tanner. So we first see that the miracles are two different miracles, but in each miracle we find, as we've been making the point throughout, even when you look at the Gospels and the miracles that Jesus did there and the miracles that take place in the book of Acts as well, you find that they illustrate some aspect of salvation. The first one we meet with is Aeneas, and we are told nothing about his background, except we see he has a Greek name, but we have no background. But notice who it is that Peter came to visit. As we look at verse 33, verse, end of verse 32, he came also down to the saints who dwelled at Ludda. So he came to the saints. And while there with the saints in verse 33, there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden. So it seems that he was in the company of the saints. He probably was one of them. And something else seems to fit the notion too. Because in verse 34, when Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. This causes us to think then that Peter must have known that this man had some familiarity with Jesus since he felt no compulsion to tell this man who Jesus was. So there's an assumption there that this man knows 
that Jesus the Christ, he doesn't have to explain who that is. He just merely tells him that it's the one, Jesus is the one who heals him. We then note his condition. He is a man who was paralyzed. The King James says he, he was, had palsy, which means the same thing. The word has a meaning of being weakened in the limbs. And we are told this condition had gone on for eight years. Now, why is that important? Well, because as he lay still, as he lay paralyzed on his bed, unable to move, muscles would atrophy. That is, they would shrink and continue to shrink because if you don't use them, they will shrink and eventually get to the point where they hardly even are visible. So more and more each year, the more he lay on his bed, unable to move, the worse his condition would be. And so it would come that his limbs were basically useless. More and more unable to cause the body to move in the least. So you, you look at it, he says, eight years of doing this, which means everybody who was his family or friends or those who went by him said, it's hopeless for him. He'll, he'll never recover from this because of the fact it's already been eight years. Again, we can compare that. It sounds a whole lot. There's some parallels there from the man that Peter was used to heal in chapter 3. Again, that man was a cripple. Now, neither Jesus or disciples went around with their traveling healing show. That wasn't what they were there to do. The miracles were planned and had a purpose, and we see the purpose was that people would see this, and they would attest that these men represented the true God. Peter had no prior information about this man. You know, some of these people go around with their, uh, their, their shows, uh, their little tent shows. We'll have people interview those who have different infirmities, find out their name, find out what their infirmity was. So then the one who's supposed to be the healer will have this person come forward. And he will say their name and he will say, or she will say whatever their affliction is. And everybody's, oh, wow, they've already got a word of knowledge. Well, Peter had no prior information about this man, uh, just his name and his condition. Now, as we see this scene unfold, we see Peter in verse 34 give him an order. After he says, Jesus Christ heals you. And just as he did with the crippled man in, in chapter 3, he commanded him to arise. But then add something to that. He says, arise and make your bed. Now some of you young people are probably used to hearing that every day. But this man, this paralyzed man, was not on a mattress and box spring. He would be on a mat. And so when he's told to make his bed, <clears throat> what he's told to do 
is roll up the mat. But there's something significant about that, isn't there? Just as when you make your bed in the morning, it's symbolic of the fact that you're leaving it. You're not returning to it till next time you go to sleep in it. And the same kind of symbolism comes here. When he rolls up his mat, it's proof positive not only that his body is working, but he doesn't need that mat to lie on now. He's been, it's another symbolic aspect of the, the healing, that he is completely healed. And as we see Peter giving this command, and, and in the midst of this, it's very simple, and it's beautiful how he points everything away from himself. He says, Jesus, the Christ, heals you. I, he doesn't say, in the name of Jesus, I tell you, arise. But with the confidence and power of knowing that it is Christ who has brought him to this point, Christ who has told him, heal this man, and Christ working through him, he is able to say with confidence, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter took the tension away from himself, pointed to Jesus. Well, he couldn't have done this miracle on his own anyway, or in his own name, or his own strength. But know what happened? He says, arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. Sometimes when we think about these miracles, we don't stop to think of the condition these men were in or these people were in before the healing. He's going to stand instantaneously. Muscles, tendons, sinews, and nerve pathways are all going to be regenerated. And he will stand a man who has been paralyzed for eight years. With Jesus, there's no partial healing. We never read in the scriptures of anyone who went away partially well. They were all completely healed. And there were signs afterwards to show. When in Acts chapter 3, when Peter was used to heal this crippled man, what was he doing? Afterwards, he was walking and leaping and praising God. Well, that made it pretty clear that he had been truly healed. And as these healings are a picture of salvation, we know with Jesus Christ, too, there is no such thing as partial salvation. You can never be partly saved. You're either fully saved or not saved at all. There's no third category. All of a sudden in this world, we have all different categories for people. Well, when it comes to people in their spiritual state, they are either saved or lost. There's no third row for anybody to, to stand in. The sign attested to who Peter was. But it was designed as well to appoint people to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So that's the first healing. Then quickly, the second healing takes place. In a nearby town, there came the news of a death of a dearly loved and charitable woman named Tabitha or Dorcas. And depending on who you read, the name either means gazelle, which that has a nice picture to it, or goat. <laughs> which could again be greatest of all time, but that wasn't what is in mind at the time when they said goat. Uh, Let's stick with gazelle. Notice what is said of her. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple. Before we are told anything about this woman, the first thing we're told about is her faith. That's the first and most important thing that comes to it. She is a disciple. The first thing said about her before all her good deeds and everything else, she was a disciple. We read that she was full of, of good works. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Now, these good works and acts of charity, which generally meant providing food and clothing for needy ones, for widows and unfortunates, which she did. And what that means is she did in faith. She did it in faith for the glory of God. And as we see, there in verse 37, she became sick and she died. And what happened then? Well, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. They prepared her body for her burial. The washing back then was symbolic, a symbolic illustration of her being clean before God. And while they may not have had hope of her being raised from the dead, they did send for Peter. And Peter wastes no time in arriving. And he sees in verse 39 the crying and the mourning that's going on. And Peter rose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room and all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. And so these widows, clothed in tunics, tunics and garments that she had made for them. There's a point being made here that we, if we read too fast, we'll, we'll miss. The good that we do in the name of the Lord doesn't die with us. She's dead, but her good works are being spoken of. If she had done them for herself and for her own glory, this wouldn't be mentioned at all. 
but she did these things obviously for the glory of God. They were counted as worthy to be remembered. Wherever the book of Acts is read, for as long as the Bible is in existence, and that's going to be forever, her works are going to be remembered. Now, there, might, there were probably other people who did make garments and did do things, but they didn't do them for the glory of God. So something interesting takes place here. Peter comes with them to this place. And notice in verse 40, all these mourners that are around the bed, Peter put them out, has them leave the room. And the next thing he does is different from any other thing that we've seen him do before. He kneels down and he prays. He didn't do that with the paralyzed man. But he does do this with her. And it's very similar to what Elijah did in 1 Kings chapter 17 when he was going to raise the widow's son. He even has her to leave the room. And this is very similar thing that's taking place. But why did Peter empty the room? Wouldn't it be something for people to see her awake from her sleep of death? Perhaps he needs time because it had not been revealed to him exactly what was to come to pass, what was to happen. So here he prayed that God would reveal to him that which he was supposed to do. With the previous, he had just spoken. Here he prays. But also, perhaps knowing the superstitious nature of people, he might have felt that everything that he did prior to raising this young woman from the dead, they would look and say, okay, here was step one, here was step two, here was step three, here's step four. And so they would say, now here's four steps to raising the dead. We're going to do it just as Peter did. And if you don't think so, watch some of these charlatans on television. They all seem to do the same thing. They have people walk up, they pop them on the head. So that's not even scriptural. But if they don't make that contact and knock them over, for some reason, that doesn't work. That's pure superstition. That's the thing that goes on. That's when people watch and they say, it's like the seven sons of Sceva. They saw Paul casting out demons. Oh, well, we can do that. And I'm not going to give the rest of the story. We'll, we'll be coming to that. But they thought, oh, well, we have to do is just do the right incantations and say the right words, and boom, demons will come out. Well, they came out. The same thing happened, can be very possible to happen here. Because the devil always wants to imitate, always wants to corrupt. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 25, the time shall come when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And hear the voice of Christ 
uttered through the mouth of Peter, giving back the breath of life to the body of Tabitha. And so in verse 42, we see the result. This result is the same as the, the first. That is, that many, many believed on the Lord. We have to understand these are illustrations for us. Spiritually, before salvation, we're paralyzed. We won't come to Jesus. We really morally can't come to Jesus. Something has to be done for us. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. That's not mentioned just one time. It's mentioned a couple of times. Dead in our sins and trespasses. There's the picture of Tabitha. She's dead. She can't respond to Peter. You can't come to Christ unless the Spirit of God brings life into you. And I've heard people come at, sort of at this sort of teaching and they say, well, it's all of God. What's the use? What's the use? What's the hope? But you see how foolish a thought that is because God is our hope. Do you think for that paralyzed man as he lay there on that mat that there was a friend, a family member, a passerby or anybody that could do anything for him? Anything. Any hospital or medical place that, that people practice any kind of medicine at that point could have done anything for him. No, could he have raised himself? Absolutely not. And everybody that went by him, as we said, ah, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. Poor guy, he's just going to be there forever. So it's eight years, 2,920 days he lays on that mat, motionless. But then on day 2,921, Peter comes to him. Christ, through his servant, Peter, changed his life, turned helpless and hopeless into helped and hope-filled. If indeed it is up to man. You see, the people who say it's up to the person, they're the ones that are talking about things being hopeless. Because you, a dead man can't move. A dead man can't respond. That's why salvation is also referred to as regeneration. Being born again. If it's up to man, it is hopeless as it's, says in Jeremiah, can a leopard change his spots? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? We're getting to the point where we can't even say that anymore because that's racist. <laughs> but it's talking about impossibilities. Can, can an animal change its coloration? No, it can't. That's the point. 
And so all around Tabitha's bed, there was mourning and weeping, thinking they will never hear her voice again. It's all hopeless. Can we go back to understanding that salvation is a miracle? And miracles are the work of God. Moses didn't part the Red Sea, although people say that, you know, Moses part the Red Sea. No, he didn't. He had this, this dead stick in his hand. <laughs> it's no longer attached to a tree, so guess what? It's not getting any life to it. It's a dead stick. Maybe well preserved, but it's a dead stick. And he touches the ground. And the water moves. How? By the power of God working through those instruments. Now we see the Lord do miracles now through the word given by his servants. Who really could predict the day that the Lord saved, uh, saved you? You put it on the calendar and you'll go, oh, well, May 10th, this is the day the Lord will save me. It didn't work that way. You had no idea the day you were saved that you were going to be saved. We can't at the same time then because we are people of hope because we trust in God and his power to do things. So therefore, when we look at those and we say, they are dead, lifeless, spiritually, we can't find any hope for them. We know different in that we don't know when God will work. We know how he will work because he's made that clear. But you don't know, as Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wills. And you don't know where it comes from. And you don't know where it goes. So is everyone. So is everyone. So is everyone who is born of God. We who believe in God's sovereignty and salvation are the people of hope, not the people of despair, because it's left to man to do it himself. That's hopeless. Let's stand together for prayer.